Well, as we continue our series in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, let me encourage you, if you would, to turn with me to the third chapter. We come this evening to this third chapter of the book of Acts, and we see the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Acts of the Apostles. <clears throat> Please follow as I read the first ten verses of Acts chapter 3. Hear the word of the true and living God. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon. And the man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. <clears throat> that is called beautiful, the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the ministry of the word. Let us pray. O oh, Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence. We are conscious once again of having the inestimable privilege of holding your word in our hands, having it read and expounded in our hearing. And we trust to the good of our never-dying souls. Father, we would cry out to you for the gracious assistance of your Holy Spirit, that he would come upon people and preacher alike and enable us, Father, not only to understand this passage, the implications thereof, but that our lives might be transformed even as this man's life was transformed of whom we've just read. Father, I pray that you would teach us in this hour and that you would do so to the glory of of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the good of our souls, we ask in his name. Amen. Now, as you will recall, back in chapter 2, we saw some 3,000 men and women who were converted 
to Jesus Christ through the powerful, spirit-filled preaching of the Apostle Peter. But here we see the mood of Luke's narrative changes somewhat. And in chapter 3, we see one seemingly insignificant man, a beggar, a cripple from birth, receive something far above all he asked. When he discovers for the very first time wholeness of life through the mercy and power and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see unfolded later in chapter 4 what happened to this one man was owned and used of God to impact another great crowd of some 5,000 in number. You will notice in verse 4 of chapter 4 that many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And from that we see that you never know what might happen when you stop and minister to a beggar. When Peter first laid eyes on this crippled man sitting outside the temple at the gate called Beautiful, or the gates it was leading into the outer precincts of the temple, I doubt that he thought for one moment that I'm going to witness through that man, to that man and through that one single act of mercy, God is going to convert hundreds and thousands of men and women. No, simply put, what did Peter do? He seized the opportunity of the moment. He seized the opportunity to speak to this man. And the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. You never know what implications there may be, what ramifications there may be from pausing to speak, to minister to someone who isn't looking for the gospel, but who nonetheless is someone whom God ordained to salvation from all eternity. Now, I want you to notice that chapter 3 follows a similar pattern to that of chapter 2. There are similarities between the two. There's a miracle. There's the profound influence upon a large crowd. There's the preaching of Jesus Christ resulting in many converts thereafter. And significantly, what we ought not to miss, you and I, is that it is the message and not the miracles that persuade the people. You look back to chapter 2 in verse 37 at the conclusion of Peter's Pentecost sermon where he boldly set forth Jesus as the Christ. And we read that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness, for the remission of sins. And we read in verse 41, So those who received his word, that is, his message, were baptized, and there were added that day 
about 3,000 souls. And we see the same thing in chapter 4 and verse 4. But many of those who heard the word, the message, believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The miracle drew their attention, but the message claimed their hearts. I suppose it might come as a surprise to many people when they learn that miracles, as we understand them, are relatively rare in the Bible. But these miracles of the apostles were authenticating signs that they were the approved, authorized servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, where Paul speaks of those things that mark or identify an apostle. Signs and wonders and mighty works, which he says were performed among the Corinthians with utmost patience. They were signs that God used to authenticate his apostolic servants. Now, I am not saying that God does not work miracles today. He is the sovereign Lord who is able to do whatever pleases him. He can raise the dead if it pleases him to do so. But the fact is that the miracles of the New Testament belong to a significant progression in redemptive history and were the accredited signs that reveal these men to be what they were, the duly appointed servants of the true and living God. Well, then, here's a man, we're told in chapter 3 and verse 2, who was lame from birth. He was crippled from birth. And on a daily basis, he was carried to the beautiful gate of the temple to beg day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. This was the routine of his life. Now, we are uncertain how long he had been engaged in this act of begging. Though we know from verse 22 of chapter 4 that he was above 40 years of age. Perhaps he was carried there daily by his family members. What better place, what better time, the time of prayer around 3 o'clock in the afternoon to appeal to the pity, the piety of his fellow Jews. We don't know how long he had been begging like this. And no doubt this day appeared like any other day except for one thing. It was a day decreed in eternity by God Almighty to visit this crippled man and make him whole in body and soul. You never know what might happen when you seize the moment. You never know that this might be a day ordained in times eternal by the living God to bring someone into the realm of his kingdom. Now we're told as the chapter begins that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon. And you may be wondering, why were they going up to the temple? This is the New Testament era. 
Why were Peter and John going up to the temple? Had not the death of our Lord Jesus Christ rendered the temple and the sacrifices there obsolete as the place of atonement? Well, yes, it had. The temple belonged to the age of type and shadows as Hebrews 10 expresses it. It was in the process of passing away. The people of God, that is everyone who had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they were now his temple. After all, Paul writes and he says, you, you, Paul, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, you are God's temple. But Peter and John lived at the intersection of the ages. They found themselves in the midst of an age that was passing away. And a new age had already dawned. And it would take time for the church. And in different ways, it would become obvious that the temple was no longer the focus for Christian worship. And even at this early stage, Christians began meeting in homes, and they had home churches. The temple had rejected God's Messiah, and in A.D. 70, the temple itself would be altogether destroyed. But here are Peter and John going up to the temple to pray, and they encounter this crippled man. And seeing Peter and John, he makes his appeal to them by, by, for relief by way of alms. No doubt he had made the same appeal to other people who had passed by him that day for money. And Peter, we're told, directed his gaze at him, as did John. And surely this man thought, this is my day. <laughs> this is my day. I mean, they're looking at me. This is my day. They're going to respond to my need. And to be sure, it was his day. But it was his day in a way he could never have imagined. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. Or as the old version reads, Look on us. Peter commands him to look at them. And then Peter uses these very familiar words. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I think it's difficult. I know it is for me to imagine how this man must have initially responded in his mind to these words. Was he shocked or befuddled with disbelief initially? Or was there something in what Peter said and how Peter said it that immediately arrested his attention? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, we read, and raised him up and immediately his ankles and feet were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. Peter, <laughs> he, 
He was bankrupt in terms of alms. He had no silver or gold to give him. But what he did have was something infinitely far above all he asked. No doubt the man initially expected he was about to receive some temporary relief by way of financial aid, but he received some funds that permanently funded him. And as he was carried there that day, I'm sure he had no conception that he was going to walk home from that day of begging. Now, I hasten to add that it's impossible for us to know whether at that moment the beggar trusted in the power and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ or whether God's merciful act in healing him in the name of Jesus Christ led him to faith. But what we do know is that in an instant, so it appears, he was leaping, standing, walking, and praising God. Faith was born astonishingly in a moment in the heart and life of this formerly crippled beggar. And that alone ought to be a great challenge to us. It surely is to me. Do we really believe that God can work so sovereignly, so astoundingly in such a way, suddenly and gloriously in the most unlikely of people? After all, he's the same God today, is he not, as he was then? He is able to do whatever he pleases but our expectations of him, I hasten to add, my expectations of him are so limited and lacking. Clearly, in a moment, in a moment of time, living, saving, Christ-centered faith was born in this man's heart and he was praising God. We don't know precisely the moment when it pleased God to generate faith in his heart but what we do know that as his hand gripped Peter's immediately his feet and ankles became strong and he began to walk and more than that not only walking but leaping with sheer jubilance and joy alms financial relief no longer occupied his mind because for the first time in his life, he was walking, yes, leaping on his own two feet. He had asked for some money, but God in Jesus' name had given him something money could not buy. Indeed, something far above all he asked. Well then, what are we to make of these verses? Well, there are some five things and. Before you fall over in the pew, I hasten to add. <laughs> I hasten to add, they're all brief. <laughs> and the first point, and, and this comes directly from Calvin's commentary, and, and it's a point that Calvin makes that I think is so obvious, and yet it's so pertinent, and, and we, need to, we need to use it. And so I, I couldn't, even though it was Calvin's point, I had to bring it out. He says, and I quote Calvin, we have in this history a type or figure of our spiritual restoring. 
That's Calvin's way of saying, in other words, God portrays for us here what it means to be saved. That's what Calvin is saying. What it means to be restored unto God. For we are like this crippled man. We are helpless before God. We can do nothing to restore ourselves to God. There is an infinite gulf between us and God. But like this crippled man, we receive mercy in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, through his word, comes to do for us, indeed, what we could never do for ourselves. In this history, Calvin writes, a type or a figure of our spiritual restoring. We see it here. And so often in the Gospels, we have these miracles set before us. And we're intended to see beyond the miracles and to draw the connection between them and our salvation. And what a great picture of salvation this miracle is. Perhaps you've come here tonight and maybe at least you've come to understand that there is nothing you can do to reconcile or restore yourself to God. Nothing you can do. And perhaps you're thinking, what hope is there for me? Well, my friend, if you're in such a place tonight, coming to the point of seeing that there's nothing you can do for yourself is the first step, is the first step for salvation. Because then when you realize you've got nothing native in you to give to God, what are you left to do? But to beg, crying out to God, please be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what you're left with. And that is the pathway to salvation. The dawning realization that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. But God is willing to save those who in their spiritually bankrupt state cry out and seek him. I'm often reminded of those words from Tennyson's poem, In Memoriam, where he writes, So runs my dream, but what am I? An infant crying in the night. An infant crying for the light. And with no language but a cry. Sometimes we don't know how to pray, but God hears our cry. The second thing we want to take note of here is that we see a further unfilling of the Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would come. Isaiah 35, from which I read tonight. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah would come, God would do great things. There would be signs and wonders following. And here is a vindication of the apostolic ministry of Peter and John. God grants them this sign of a crippled man leaping and leaping and praising God. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Here is a clear token of Jesus' messianic credentials and authority. You remember when John the Baptist was in prison, Matthew chapter 11, as well as you read about it in Luke 7. 
he sent word by two of his disciples, according to Luke, to ask, are you the one who is to come? You see, John wasn't seeing what John thought he ought to be seeing. Are you the one who is to come? And Jesus sends these words back to John. He said, go and tell John what you see and hear. He says to his two disciples, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news, the gospel preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What is Jesus saying? He's telling John that what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 35 is presently being placarded in living color before the eyes of all Israel. It's happening now. That's what he's sending word to John. I am manifesting, he's saying to John, my messianic credentials. And this one-time beggar was living, leaping, living, praising proof of God's power to keep his promise through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, is when the Lord works savingly in any life, whether it be dramatically or quietly, and never confuse drama with reality. Never think that conversions are more authentic because they are more dramatic. Never think that people cannot tell you when, uh, or it's not authentic because they can't tell you when or how they were converted. And don't think that their profession of faith is suspect because of that. Never give any such thought any veracity. But when the Lord works savingly in any life, whether dramatically or quietly, at least, at least two things always follow. And you can count on two things, as was the case with this man. First, he praised, gave glory to God. Verse 8, walking and leaping and praising God. He will praise God. He will thank God for the grace that has been freely given to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the great marks of the new birth, is it not? You cannot be delivered from hell fire and not be thankful. You cannot be a child of God and not in some way express that. You may by nature be a reserved, a taciturn individual. Lots of people are like that. God makes us all differently. You may be uh, exceedingly passive in your humanity. But when God saves sinners, they praise him. They thank him. They bless him. They glorify him. They may not express it as outwardly as some do. But if, you're able to engage, if you were able to engage in spiritual surgery, 
you would see their hearts pulsing, beating with praise and thanksgiving to God. Now this man became quite animated. Indeed, was a grand display of outward praise for God. And you can understand why. For the first time in his whole experience, his feet and his ankles were made strong. But the measure of praise is never established by outward display but by the heart reality of new life in Christ. But do not be critical of exuberant praise because it's not the way that we do it. But here's the litmus test. Do you praise God for his grace in Jesus Christ, however you express it? If you do that, then that is a mark of the new birth. The fourth thing we notice is that the crowd saw they witnessed the change in his life and they were filled with wonder and amazement. Verse 10. All the people saw him walking, verse 9, and praising God, verse 10, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. They saw the transformation. You say, well, obviously he was lame and crippled and couldn't walk and now he could. It was a manifest transformation. Whenever God works savingly in anyone's life, there is always a manifest transformation. Let me express it differently. It is impossible for someone to be saved, to be made whole by the Lord Jesus Christ and not show in his or her life that they are now different, that there has been a change. And that's true even for our covenant children. Our covenant children may never know a day, may it please God, may never know a day that the Lord was not their God and they were not his. But it will be manifest nonetheless in their lives in some way. They will live differently. They will be obedient to mom and dad, not perfectly, but purposefully. They live differently. They're not conformed to the mold of this world, but they're transformed by the renewing of their minds in the language of Paul. The gospel changes us and it changes how we think you and I. It changes how we behave because when God storms the citadel of our hearts and captures it by his grace, the great pole star of our existence is this. How might I now live to please him who loved me and gave himself for me? Do you live differently? And I don't mean oddly. Some Christians try to be different. But if you're a Christian, you don't need to try to be different because you are different. Is it manifest whose you are and whom you serve? I remember <clears throat> my daughter growing up and she was in high school. <laughs> and uh, 
Every time she'd walk out the door and she was going to some event or something, I'd always tell her, I'd say, honey, remember whose you are. And I said, I'm not talking about you being a PK. I'm not talking about you being a preacher's kid. I'm talking about you belong to the Lord. You remember whose you are. Well then, fifthly, can't believe I got here that fast, can you? <laughs> Peter seizes the opportunity to address this astonished crowd. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John and all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? What does Peter proceed to do? We're going to hear about this more next time as Pastor Rankin preaches to us. But he goes on to point them to Jesus Christ. He goes on to point them to Jesus Christ. And the simple point I want to make, and you've already heard me say it, is that Peter seized the moment. Carpe Deum, literally plucked the day in Latin. Hence, seized the moment. God gives us opportunities, but it is our responsibility, yours and mine, to seize them for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why evangelism is not what the church organizes. Evangelism ought to be the lifestyle of the believer. Now, I do not suggest by, suggest by this that we should never have any organized events as such. I don't mean that. But evangelism is essentially, natively, taking the opportunities that God gives us to speak for Jesus Christ. Evangelism is commending the good news of God in Jesus Christ by integrity at work by uncompromising honesty, by faithfulness to your wife and loving submission to your husband and obedience to your parents and love for your children. And also, of course, by explaining why it is that these virtues characterize your life as a Christian, by explaining that you point them to Jesus Christ who fulfilled the commandments, and you say, the Son of God died to bear the judgment that my sins deserve. And I seek not perfectly, but purposefully to please Him and to live for Him who in Himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Evangelism is a lifestyle it's a lifestyle that seizes the opportunities that God gives us. And I know that many of you here are much better at that than I am. But these early Christians were so blown away by the gospel that they seized the opportunity. They shined as bright lights in the world of their day. Let me encourage you to do one thing this week, and I close with this. Ask the Lord 
to give you at least one opportunity, one opportunity to tell someone about Jesus Christ. Ask the Lord to give you the courage when the opportunity comes to seize the moment, to grab it. Maybe you'll be trembling and hesitant, but ask the Lord to give you the opportunity. And when the opportunity presents itself to you, Ask God to give you the courage, the grace, the desire to speak for your Savior, the one and only Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus. And being a little bolder, perhaps, invite them to come to church with you. If you can't share the gospel, bring them to church where they'll be under the sound of the gospel through the ministry of the word. You can do that. You might bring them under the sound of the word of God and he will ordain it and use it to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. Seize the moment. Peter did. And God used it ultimately to bring some 5,000 souls into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Ask, and the Lord may very well give Far above all you ask, let's pray.